0: So this morning, we're going to switch gears. We're going to head into our message this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to Hebrews 3. Um, As you've hopefully picked up, we are looking at hope this morning. And um, as part of sort of our Advent series, we've looked at joy, love. This morning is hope. And then Christmas Day, we're going to look at peace. We haven't quite dived into Hebrews, which has been throughout our book. Um, we had the kids' service, and last week was first Sunday back, the baptism. And so, this, this morning, actually, I really wanted to just dive into Hebrews a little bit and uh, explore that in terms of what it says for hope. So, Hebrews 3, if you've got it, it'll be on the screens as well. And uh, let me... Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So I was really captured by that last verse there this week as I was preparing our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I don't know about you, but those are not often a combination of words that I put together. Confidence, confidence. Uh, Boasting and hope. You know, when we talk about we hope for something, like I hope for that bike, it's kind of language that feels a bit flimsy, feels a bit weak. It's kind of like I'm hoping for that to happen, but I don't know if it will. Yeah, that is the way that we use the word hope. It has a bit of doubt in it. Um, It's kind of like how maybe a few years ago I would talk about marriage. I hope to be married one day. I'm kind of sure it'll happen, but I'm not quite sure. Don't know the details of how and when. It felt very passive, like, yeah, maybe one day I hope it'll happen. It's very passive, it's very, like, flimsy, and probably the world looks at that quite weak. But now, now that I'm engaged, I talk about hope in a much more, I think, what, how the Bible talks about hope. It's something still in the future... There's still a few doubts about it in terms of, I don't know, COVID might ruin everything, who knows, but there's this sense that it's secure. There's a promise being made, there's a sign of that promise and I'm confident in it and it's active, it's an active hope, it's something I'm preparing for, it's 124, hallelujah, and it's something active, it's this real, solid, secure, confident, assured hope. And that is what the Bible paints a picture of our hope. Something that is confident and assured. And often, if you look through the New Testament in particular, that language around our future hope, the future coming of Christ, is language of a wedding. It's language of a bride and a groom. And it's the language of a feast and a celebration. It's something that we wait for expectantly. We have signs and seals of a promise We prepare for the day and we hold on with hope. So this is the nature of Christian hope. It's really important we get this as a foundation. The nature of Christian hope is an excited and assured future outlook on eternal life. Christian hope is an excited and assured future outlook on eternal life. Something ahead that we're excited about, that we're assured of, and I would say that it is vital to the Christian walk. It is vital to our journey as Christians to have this hope. Martin Luther said that everything is done in the world is done by hope. Everything that we do in the world is done by hope, and he uses the example of a merchant or a, you know who goes into business in hope that he will gain money, or a farmer who sows seed and hopes that it'll produce a crop. Like everything in the world is done by hope. We hope that it'll happen. And how much more so then as Christians do we need hope to not just get through this life, not to just survive our time on earth, but to thrive as the church of Christ and to live as he would call us to live. We need hope in our lives. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he's writing to an audience who were... Being persecuted for their faith. They were tempted to return to the Jewish system and to the ways that they had supposedly left behind. They're tempted to go back to that. We get evidence throughout the book that people are falling away from faith, people are neglecting, rocking up to the gatherings, and the author is writing to them to encourage them and to strengthen them in their hope and to get them to fix their eyes on Jesus. So this morning from our passage, I just want to focus on three things. First thing is consider Jesus. The second one is to remember our shared future. And three is to hold on to hope and let go of fear. So that's where we're traveling this morning. hope you are ready. Consider Jesus. The first part, consider Jesus. This is where we got sort of our theme for Advent from this verse and if you've been following sort of the readings and if you've been following the start of Hebrews it starts out in chapter 1 outlining the divinity of Jesus you know it talks about the exa- Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God he is the one who upholds the universe he is seated at the right hand of God he is paid for the purifications for our sins it is language of Jesus' divinity and then there's arguments in the second half of chapter 1 about how Jesus is greater than all the angels, you know, the angels who were revered by the Jews. Who, were, you know, if you look through the Old Testament, every time an angel comes, people are freaking out. They're in awe. They're bowing down. And so the author makes it clear that Jesus is greater than that. His divinity is greater than the angels. So chapter one is the divinity of Jesus. Chapter two then is the humanity of Jesus. It talks about how he suffered, how he was tempted, how he. Came to earth, he lowered himself, he lowered himself lower than the angels, and he came to earth to live amongst us. And he suffered, and he died, and he acted as our high priest. Therefore, chapter three starts, therefore, because of who Jesus is, it says, Therefore, consider him. And in particular, it makes this comparison between Jesus and Moses. But I just wanted to pause on this word consider. It's the only sort of imperative verb in our passage. It's the only real command and instruction is to consider Jesus. And it literally translates to to think from up to down. It's to perceive or to behold, to gaze upon, to focus on, to give your attention to, to come to a real and decisive conclusion. And that's, You probably can't really see that too well from the back. I I didn't factor in social distancing rows. Anyway, if you've got binoculars out there, you might be right. Um, But that's just from the Bible dictionary, so you knew that I wasn't lying to you about the definition. But it means to stop, to pause, to look, to behold, and then to make a decision. It's like to make a full analysis of something. You know, We would do a full review, we would get all the information, pros and cons list and everything, and then we would make a decision about what we think. So my question is for you this morning, is have you done that with Jesus? Have you considered him? And I know that immediately we'd all go, yeah, 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 of course, of course, yeah, move on. But really, have you considered Jesus... Whether you aren't a believer and you're coming here this morning and you're going, I don't know what it's all about, but have you actually considered? Or are you just basing your opinions on what you've heard from other people? Maybe you're young in your faith or well, in life and you're just here because maybe your parents have sort of said, oh, I expect you to come or you just do it because that's what you've been doing. You get to see your friends and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but have you actually considered... Jesus, and actually deeply looked into his life and teaching and actually made a decision that actually, yeah, this is what I want. And for those of us who are maybe a bit more... For myself, I felt at the last couple of weeks, I've totally drifted over the last couple of weeks as I've got distracted by all the things going on. And I actually had to reconsider this week. Actually, if I really believe this, that would change the way that I've acted in this last couple of weeks. And so this is a call for all of us. The author here is writing to the whole church saying, consider Jesus. You know, there is historical evidence for his life. There is testimony for his transforming impact. There is a compelling message in his life and mission. There is meaning and purpose in his call. There is wonder and beauty in his creation, growth and grace in history. There is a hope and joy for our future. Have you considered Jesus? Have you thought it from up to down and come to a real and decisive conclusion? And like C.S. Lewis sort of writes, there's three options when you make that conclusion. He's either a liar, lunatic or Lord. Either he lied about everything waffle, or he's Lord of all. When you really look at his life, when you really consider him, those are your options. What decision have you made? We have a tendency to drift, we have a tendency to doubt, we have a tendency to delay decisions, but maybe this morning is a chance for us to really consider who he is and what he's all about. You know, in our passage, the writer draws up this quick comparison to help the readers do this. He says, he invites people, like, consider Jesus, this is what you need to do, but then he gives them a sort of a way to do it. Let's look at him compared to Moses, which is like comparing LeBron to MJ. It's like a, compar- it's like a tempting comparison to make, but like if you know, you know, it's not really a comparison. And so this is what he says. He talks about Moses, and you think about Moses. Moses, he heard the call from God. He then led the rescue mission of God's people out of slavery and proceeded to the Promised Land. But of course, before that, there was a the period of testing in the wilderness. Ended up being 40 years, and guess what? Moses, even though he, provided, uh, many, he performed many signs and wonders, in the end he failed. He made a mistake, and God punished him for it. He wasn't allowed into the promised land. Instead, he got to the mountain, he looked over, he saw it, but that's where he would die. Joshua would be the one who would then take over from there. Consider Jesus, on the other hand, whose Hebrew name would have been Joshua. He led the rescue mission of God's people from their sin and proceeded to the real promised land or heaven, where he now sits. He now sits in the right hand of God, and Hebrews 1 talked about that. He died and he rose again, ascended to heaven. He also had a period of testing. You know, each of the Gospels makes clear. Or Matthew, Mark and Luke make clear that Jesus had 40 days in the wilderness. It's almost like this clear comparison back. 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, and yet he stayed true. And really his whole life was a temptation. His whole life was a journey where he was tempted to take power or tempted to step in and do something or tempted to come down from the cross or not go there. And yet he stays true to his call. He stays true to God. And in the end, gets to the promised land and opens a way for all of us. And so when you consider Jesus, when you really think about it, you know, so much of his life while on earth was easily fact-checked. You know, there was no social media giants in that day doing all the work for you, but there was people in power there who would check his claims. They dissected his teaching. Every time he spoke, they were there. If he made a moral mistake, they were there. They were watching. They were ready to pounce. You know, when he died, they went looking for his tomb. They went looking for the body. And yet in the heart of Israel, in Jerusalem, where they had all these people looking to see, is this guy right? That is where the Christian movement takes off. Thousands of people give their life to follow him. Thousands of people who saw him each and every day. They believe, they follow, they give their lives to put. And the thing is, this was a common thing in this time. I don't know if you know this, but in history, there was, there was numerous people around the time of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. People who rose up almost as revolutionaries, wanting to overthrow the Romans and wanting to lead God's people out of this oppression and they claimed to be the messiah and yet all of them were dismissed because of either moral failure or they didn't line up with these prophecies that everyone knew or you know there was some lack in their teaching that didn't line up with God's law so this was a common thing in the day of Jesus to actually someone to think actually this could be it that's why the crowds came that's why they wondered is this They were intrigued because other people had come, and yet they'd been dismissed. And with just one mistake, with just one sin, with just one error, Jesus would be on the same level as Moses. Great, but not great enough. And yet our passage says that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That he is far greater. He's the fulfillment because he completed the entire mission. And therefore, we can have hope. We can rest assured. We can be confident and we can boast in the good news because Jesus clearly is the fulfillment of what all that God had promised. And so we believe and we have faith and we go on trusting him because we can look at his life and teaching. We can consider him and we can find hope. So have you considered Jesus? What would that look like for you this week? To really consider him life and teaching and see if it measures up. To actually come back and go, you know what, I've been drifting away, but when I consider Jesus and I look at what he said and I look at his word, I go, you know what, that is what I want. What's it look like for you to consider Jesus? So know that we can be strengthened in our hope when, one, we consider Jesus. Once again in verse 1 it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Just like Roy showed us before, we we look up. We look up and we remember actually there's something ahead. There's something that we look to. We have a heavenly calling that is meant to encourage us. That is what our Christian hope is about that there is something ahead worth waiting for. This is what Martin Luther says. In his writings called Table Talk, he says, If there were no hope of the resurrection or of another and better world after this short and miserable life, to what purpose should we hear his word and believe in him? What were we the better when we cry and sigh to him in our anguish and need that we wait with patience upon his comfort and salvation, upon his grace and benefits shown in Christ? He says, Why praise him and thank him for them? Why be in daily danger and suffer ourselves to be persecuted and slain for the sake of God's word. Essentially he's saying, what's the point? If there is nothing better ahead, what is the point? And this is a guy who battled depression most of his life. This is a guy who was cast out of the Catholic Church and he was hunted, people trying to kill him. And he says, if there is nothing better ahead, then this is futile. See, our heavenly calling is of, a, of uh, we probably don't really think about it a whole lot. We're quite wrapped up in our in our worlds here, that we don't actually think a whole lot about the world to come. In fact, if I'd asked a lot of you, do you want to go to heaven today? I think, hopefully, most of you would say yes, but there'll be a part of us that goes, oh, I don't know, have got a few things to do here first. Yeah, and there's a few plans that I have, and there's a few things I want to do, and like, I want to go, but maybe just wait. And yet the Bible paints a completely opposite picture. This is a heavenly calling that we look forward to, that we anticipate, and that we get excited about. Getting over FaceTime. Like, and there's a future reality of face-to-face. And that's what we're excited about. That's what we look forward to. That's what we hope for. Why would we be content with FaceTime, particularly when the internet connections are really, really dodgy up in remote Northern Territory? <laughs> that we look forward to. Why? Because we see Jesus face to face. All of our troubles are gone. Our world is put right. That's what it says in Revelation 21. The Apostle John recalls his vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here's that wedding language, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the future reality we look to. Pain, sickness, mourning, crying, death, no more. If you flick the page, Revelation 22, it says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. You know, I've read that this week, and I just paused for a moment, and I just thought throughout my life, there have been times of worship, you know, those almost transcendent times in worship where you just feel God's presence. Like, it it doesn't happen every week, for me at least, I don't know, maybe some of you are more holy, but For me, it's just from time to time. And I can recall a few moments throughout my teenage years where I just got a sense of like, man, this is... And imagine replacing that feeling with actually seeing. That we'd worship him and we'd see his face. That is what we look forward to. That is our hope. Jesus there right with us, dwelling with his people in the center of it all. And so in Revelation 21, again, it says this, it is done. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life, without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I'll be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And here's where we get the invitation and the warning. The invitation that for those who are thirsty, for those who want what Jesus offers, who want that life with none of this death and sickness and pain, and who want something more, he says, come, drink the water without payment. It's, it's done. It's finished. Jesus invites you to consider him, to look to him and say, yeah, actually, I want what you offer. But then there's the warning that those who reject that, those who don't want that, those who say, you know what? I want to continue in my ways. I want to do my own thing. The faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the like. It's a pretty clear list. Jesus says, okay, you'll you'll have that. You'll be punished and you'll receive that in its full. Think about those things taken to their extreme and that's the world that you get where it's all murder and it's all lying and it's all suffering. Which is pretty full on. It's pretty extreme. But it's clear that we need to consider it that we need to listen to it and we need to heed the warning and then follow the invitation. Jesus makes it very clear that the saving work of his leads to new life. And if we trust him, if we follow him, he will carry us home. You see, here's the thing about our hope is that it's not actually dependent on us. There's water of life without payment. It's not like you have to rock up to heaven's gates and say, okay, I want that water of life and here's my, whatever it may be, here's my good works or here's my faithful life or here's my money that I've saved. Like It's without price. It's without payment. This is what it says in 2 Timothy. It says, this is saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, if we have died with him to our old self, he says, we will also live with him. If we endure, if we hold on, we will also reign with him. Once again, the warning, if we deny him, he will deny us. If we reject him, he'll say, have your way. But here's the thing, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And if that's what we're relying on, if we're relying on our own good works, we will not get there. But if we receive grace and mercy we trust god to be who he says he is if we trust in his saving work even if we are faithless he remains faithful he will hold up his end of the deal he will carry us all the way home so we can have hope we can trust him we can hold on because we know that he is faithful and so it says in verse six that if we hold fast if we hold on to him if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope, we will reign with Him. We will find life. We will be with Him. So I want to encourage us this morning to hold on to hope and to let go of fear. But as I actually came in this morning, I feel like fear should be like, it should have left it blank. You'll see why it's fear in a moment, because that's sort of where the passage leads. But it's holding on to hope and letting go of, fill in the blank, what that is. you know. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He says, I count all else as loss. Everything else is rubbish, and I am fixed on this upward call of Christ, so that I may gain him, so that I would get the resurrection by any means possible, is what he says, Philippians 3, verse 11, that by any means I would get there. So he lets go of all else so that he would be able to hold on to Christ. It's like if we're, in a, if we're sinking in the ocean, if we're drowning, and two lifeboats come and say, we'll save you. There's no point grabbing onto both, particularly if they're going the opposite way. They say, yeah, we'll save you and we're going to take you here, or I'll save you and we're going here. If you grab onto both, there's, there's no point. At one point, you have to say, I'm grabbing a hold of that one, and I'm letting go of that one. And that is what Jesus calls us to do, to hold fast to him, to be confident and to boast in our hope in him at the sake of letting go of all else. You know, How can you be confident and boast in your hope in Jesus and yet still say, actually, I kind of like what this world offers in these examples? Do you get where I'm going? We have to let go of what the world offers. Hebrews talks about fear. Have a read of, with me of Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 18. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He says, Jesus deli- destroyed the power of death. Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. We're no longer slaves to that sin. We are no longer slaves to that fear of death. Instead, we know that Jesus helps us. He is covered and paid for our sins. He helps those who are tempted. Therefore, Verse, chapter 3, verse 1 Therefore, we consider him. It's the very next line. Therefore, consider him. We hold fast to him. He, he who is greater than Moses, he is faithful to his house, just like the sun. And so we hold on. We hold on to our hope and we let go of the fear because Jesus has delivered us from it. He's delivered us from the power of death. And therefore delivered us from the fear of death. If we fear death, we, do we really trust that Jesus defeated that power? See, fear often reveals what we trust in. Fear reveals what we're hoping for. If I'm scared of something, it's because I'm kind of trusting that that might come. Through. If I'm fear losing my bike, I don't know. It's because I'm hoping that I'm trusting that this bike is going to be all that I need. like It's trusting that that bike is going to fulfill me or satisfy me and replace bike with whatever it may be. But fear often reveals what we trust in and what we hope for. And Jesus makes it clear that he has defeated the power of death, therefore we have no fear of death. So my question is, are you confident in that? Are you confident in that hope? Are you boasting in that hope? Are you proud of the fact that you can walk through life and go, I don't fear death? Not like... You know, you don't want to be like one of those people, like, "Oh, I don't fear death," and you just go jumping off cliffs and stuff. But in the sense that, actually, you know what? I fully believe that Jesus is who He says He is, and that He is leading us home, and that He is faithful to His people, and therefore I have hope, and I'm trusting that, and I'm holding on to that with absolute certainty. See, I think this is one of the biggest pitfalls of our secular society and the common world view of our day is that there's nothing to look forward to. And that's one of the biggest reasons I am compelled to follow Jesus because he offers future hope. Otherwise it's just you know I look around at some of my friends and it's just well you just live life have a good time and you can do good things if you want and then that's it. There's no hope beyond the grave. There's no life after death. And when you consider that, that is often depressing, often futile, often scary. That there's nothing beyond. And I believe that's because the Bible says, you know, that God has put the eternity in the hearts of man. That all of us have this sense that there's something more, that there's something beyond, that there is life after that we are wired for eternal hope. And so, once again, we invite you to consider Jesus who gives life now and forever. Do you know, Jesus makes life worth Jesus makes life on earth worth living. And he makes life after death worth waiting for. And as I thought about that this week, there's Seems to be no other world you, or no other religion that balances those two things out well. It's either very heavy on live this life and do this, or it's there's nothing here, and all you do is look ahead. And Jesus actually brings both together. He says, While you're here, while you're here on earth, I am with you. I've been tempted and I've suffered like you will, and I am with you, and I have a purpose and a call and a life for you to live, and I will be with you. He gives his spirit to us even while we're here on earth. He gives us his presence while we walk through the wilderness and says, it's worth living here. But in the same way, he says, but also look ahead to the promised land. Hold on to hope that there is something far better ahead than both of those intention, and we live that journey. You know, And I know that this life is not easy. And 2020 has been proof of that enough. And sometimes it can feel like our hope, it, rather than being this bright light, it's sort of this flickering candle and it's like you can just blow it out like that. But I pray this morning, and Christmas is that. Christmas reminds us that a light shone in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. And that light was a baby boy in a manger. Hardly the bright sun that you know illuminates the whole universe. Just a baby in a manger in the middle of one of the greatest empires in the world. There he was. And So this morning I encourage you to hold fast to Jesus. And to let go of fear. To let go of all else. And this is the present gift of our future hope, that we can actually live differently on this earth because of what is ahead. This is how C.S. Lewis put it, and this is where we'll wrap up another C.S. Lewis quote. I know, I'm sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But this is what he writes to his friend in hospital who was dying. Five months later, he dies. And so it's almost, in a way, I don't think he knew that he was going to die, but he's almost writing to himself. And this is what he said. But surely you need not have fear as well. Can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? You have long attempted, and none of us does more. A Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Remember, though we struggle against things because we are afraid of them, it is often the other way around. We get afraid because we struggle. Are you struggling? Resisting? Don't you think our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace. Relax, let go. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Let go, I will catch you. Do you trust me so little? Of course, this may not be the end. Then make it a good rehearsal. I don't know about your life maybe you are struggling and suffering maybe it's smooth seas and things are going quite well but no matter what make today make to actually look ahead to look ahead that there are far better things than ahead than any we leave behind that we can stop struggling stop wrestling with our fear and instead relax and let go and trust our Heavenly Father is who He says He is. The future with Him. And would you hold on to hope and let go of fear? Amen? Amen.